Just a few weeks ago, Nabil Qureshi died. Uh, if you don't know his story, Nabil was a Christian who converted from Islam after years of arguing, debating, and questioning. He, ch he, he challenged his Christian friends and Christian leaders that he met with uh, over and over and over again. You can read his uh, whole story in his book uh, entitled Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus. Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus. I read his uh, book a few years ago and found it uh, to be very encouraging and, and insightful. Uh, one thing you'll notice if you read his book that it took lots of searching for the truth in order to find it. And as Nabil's story shows us, and as this morning's passage shows us, Jesus was not afraid of questions. He was not afraid of being asked questions over and over and over again. If you're here this morning, and, and you're not a believer or a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, if you haven't found Him yet, or if you haven't been found by Him, and friend, I'd encourage you to seek the truth about Jesus in the way that Nabil did. Ask Jesus to reveal himself through his word to you. Ask sincerely and, and genuinely. Ask with a heart that's ready to learn. Unlike the, the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees who, who meet in our passage today, ask humbly and, and with a willingness to let Jesus himself reveal who he is. Actually, that's the kind of heart orientation that we, we all need. Believers and unbelievers alike need humility before Christ the King. And I pray that the Lord would be pleased to give that gift to us this morning as we study his word. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, and I believe you can find the passage beginning on page 879. 879. And while you're turning there, uh, let's remember what has just taken place in Luke's Gospel. The, uh, the Gospel of Luke is one of the four eyewitness accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. It's a carefully researched and orderly account of Jesus' birth, His early ministry, His teaching along the road to Jerusalem, and His final days in that city, which culminated in His death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. We're nearing the end of of our study of Luke's Gospel, which means that we're also nearing the end of Jesus' earthly life. The last time we studied this Gospel together, two weeks ago, we saw Jesus walk right into the very center of the city of Jerusalem. And the previous chapter concluded with Jesus clearing and cleansing the temple with the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the city seeking to destroy Him. Jesus is a wanted man. He is wanted not only by his apparent enemies, the Jewish religious leaders, but if you take a look at Luke chapter 19, verse 48, he is also wanted by the crowds. While Jesus is teaching daily in the temple, the crowds are, are hanging on his words. As we're going to see in Luke chapter 20, this creates an interesting dynamic. The Jewish religious leaders are seeking to destroy Jesus, but they can't make good on their plans because they're afraid of the people. There's a kind of back and forth between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders with the people kind of standing in the middle. And it strikes me that Luke wants his readers to place themselves in the middle of this conversation. I think that Luke wants us to ask ourselves, am I going to give myself to living under Jesus' authority or am I going to call his authority into question and reject him like the religious leaders did? Who will be the Lord of my life? Luke means for us to place ourselves in the crowd, to listen to the questions, listen to the arguments, listen to the answers, and make a decision. Now Luke, he, he has an agenda. Uh, he wants uh, us to come to a certain conclusion about Jesus. And here's the conclusion I hope to show you today through the text. Jesus has been sent from God to be our Lord. If I've got one sentence to summarize the thrust of these 47 verses in Luke 20, I think that would be it. Jesus has been sent from God to be our Lord. Jesus shows us that he is a worthy Lord because he will lay his life down for his people. Luke 20 is structured by questions. 
Those questions are followed by answers and applications from Jesus. So here are the four questions that we're going to be looking at this morning from Luke chapter 20. What is the source of Jesus' authority? Number one. Second, to whom do we owe our allegiance? To whom do we owe our allegiance? Third, is there a resurrection? And fourth, who is David's Lord? Who is David's Lord? Those four questions will form the outline of the rest of the sermon. And I'll repeat each question as we're moving into that next section. But I, I wonder, perhaps you've been puzzling through one of these questions for some time. And I pray that God will give us answers this morning. Let's begin with the first question. What is the source of Jesus' authority? Read Luke chapter 20. Uh, let me read verses 1 to 20 for us. Luke chapter 20, verses 1 to 20. One day, Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. The chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now, tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. For they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to his tenants and went into another country for a long while. While the time came, he, when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes. And the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere. That they might catch him in something he said. So as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Well this scene opens where the previous chapter closed. With Jesus teaching in the temple. Remember, people were hanging on his words. And remember, Jesus is on the home turf of the chief priests and scribes and the elders. They want to know the source of Jesus' authority. Who authorized him to cleanse the temple, to drive out the money changers, and to shut down their operation? Who gave him authority to teach and to perform miracles? This is an important question. It's an important question for several reasons. One reason is because Jesus is proclaiming the good news, as you can see there in verse 1. That's shorthand for the good news of the kingdom of God. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom carried with it certain expectations. These expectations were on the rise because the Passover celebration was approaching. At this time of year, uh, Jews would flock to Jerusalem. Passover celebration for Jews in the first century was a, a great time of nationalistic pride. It recalled the time when God overthrew 
the nation of Egypt and freed the people of Israel from slavery. In Jesus' day, the people of Israel were hoping for God to do the same thing. They were hoping, longing for God to send His King to overthrow the oppressive Roman regime and to set up His end-time kingdom. Jesus was preaching the good news, the good news of the kingdom. And so this time of year would have been a time when those hopes were high. And add these elements together and you get a nervous group of religious leaders. They're afraid of what Rome might think. And quite frankly, the Roman rulers were also on edge during this celebration. All throughout his ministry, Jesus had been proclaiming that the kingdom, his kingdom, was not of this world. And that while he came to release his people from bondage, as he preached in Luke chapter 4, the bondage he was referring to was the bondage of sin and death. And like the rabbis of his day often did, Jesus answered the question with a question. That was polite back then. Jesus clearly answers in such a way that places his interlocutors on the horns of a dilemma. But his answer or his question actually does more than that. You see, what Jesus has actually done is linked himself to the ministry of John the Baptist. And why not? John the Baptist proclaimed that Jesus was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah, the long-awaited King. And the truth is, is that the people were right to believe that John the Baptist was a prophet sent from God. And therefore, they would be right to believe that Jesus was the Messiah sent from God. Since the, religious, since the religious leaders would not give their answer openly, neither would Jesus. You see that in verse 8. So was it a stalemate? No. Jesus gave the religious leaders his answer through a parable spoken to the crowd. The, uh, the poet Diane Wachowski once said, Poetry is the art of saying what you mean, but disguising it. That's basically what Jesus is doing here. By telling this parable to the crowd, he is discreetly telling the religious leaders where he gets his authority. It's a pretty transparent parable. In fact, it's a parable with some history. It's a parable that's been told before. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah told a parable about a vineyard. In Isaiah chapter 5, we learn that God, that God planted a vineyard. And that vineyard was the people of Israel. But the people yielded wild grapes, unusable grapes. God tended the vineyard. But it only produced injustice and unrighteousness. And then God calls the prophet Isaiah to go and speak for him. To speak to a people who will not listen. Now if you look at verses 10, uh, verses 10 through 12 of Luke 20, you'll see that the vineyard owner sent servant after servant. We could say that he sent prophet after prophet. That's what happened in Israel's history. The prophets were rejected. And now God has sent His Son, His beloved Son. And where have we heard that phrase before in the Gospel of Luke? We heard it in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, when John the Baptist baptized Jesus. And God spoke from heaven, saying, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Do you see how Jesus is answering the question, Where do you get your authority? He's saying, I'm sent by God. I am His divine Son, the one whom He loves. And Jesus presses on past this and reveals that He is going to be killed. The tenants, who by now we can see are the Jewish religious leaders, really do want to throw Him out. Now, I don't know about you, but I was puzzled by the response we see in verse 16. Who is responding and what are they responding to? Are we hearing the, the voice of the priests or the people? It's pretty ambiguous. But the weight favors the people as that's who Jesus began telling this parable to there in verse 9. It also seems like they're reacting not merely to Jesus' last statement in verse 15, but everything that they've heard. It's an outrageous parable for faithful Jews, especially faithful Jews who, what are they doing there? They've come to Jerusalem in obedience to God, to celebrate the Passover. See, they, they listen to Him. They do what His Word says. The people can't imagine failing to heed God's messengers. 
They can't imagine rejecting and killing God's son, God's king. But friends, that is precisely what will happen in a matter of days. We may be just about three days away from Jesus' death at this point in time. And on the day of his death, the religious leaders and the crowds would take Jesus just outside Jerusalem and they would kill him. Just like the servants took the son out of the vineyard and killed him. And here is part of the deceitfulness of sin. We deceive ourselves and we say, it won't ever be me, Lord. I would never do that. But then we do. After the people tell Jesus that they would surely not be those who lose the vineyard, Jesus, he looked directly at them and said, what else can these words mean? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this would have been jarring for the people listening to Jesus. What Jesus is doing, he's citing Psalm 118, verse 22, which was the very psalm that the disciples sang as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, perhaps only a day or two earlier. And after citing this, after citing Psalm 118, verse 22, to establish the truth of what he said in the parable, Jesus follows up that citation in verse 18 with an allusion to that prophet who had been rejected, to prophet Isaiah, Chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. That's what the allusion is to. Then Jesus piles on to that allusion uh, with an echo of Daniel chapter 2, verse 34. Now, I want to encourage you to go ahead and go back and read those passages later uh, this afternoon. But I think Jesus is piling Scripture on top of Scripture to say, I'm not making this stuff up. The Scriptures have predicted my death. And note this carefully, Jesus' insistence that the rejected and therefore killed stone will become the cornerstone means that he will rise from the grave to be the one upon whom the people of God are built. Jesus, he is saying this, all of this, with all of those beautiful stones of the temple in the background, which means... That the center of worship is not the temple, but Jesus himself. He is the temple of God. Verse 18 carries with it really an application from Jesus. There are only two options with regard to Jesus. You can fall on him or he can fall on you. What's the difference? Well, one is an expression of faith. And the other is the endurance of Jesus' eternal judgment. Those who fall upon Jesus in faith are broken by Him. They are broken by Him because it is in the light of His Lordship, in the light of His perfect holiness and righteousness, that we see that we are broken people in need of repair. We cannot redeem or repair ourselves. We are so utterly humbled by our sin and His willingness, His eagerness even, to save us. Is it any wonder that the scriptures so often describe humility as brokenness? What was it that David said when he was broken by his sin with Bathsheba? In Psalm 51 verse 17, he said, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. See, God actually loves a broken people. They are the only kind of people He loves. They are the only kind of people that exist. And if you're honest with yourself, you know that is true. The question is, will we fall upon Jesus in faith? Friend, if you will fall upon Jesus and confess your brokenness, confess your sin, God will not despise you. But... If you refuse and reject His Son, like the leaders of Israel were plotting to do in verse 20, then you will be crushed by Him when He returns in judgment. So escape that judgment. Realize that the good news of the Bible began with terrible news. It began with the first man deciding that he no longer wanted to be the keeper 
of God's garden. He wanted to be the owner of the garden. And Adam wanted to be the ruler of that garden. And so he disregarded God's rule and he followed his own, followed the desire of his heart. And in doing so, Adam sinned. He was a wicked tenant. And like him, we have all decided to live our own way. Like Adam and like the wicked tenants in Jesus' parable, we've wanted to own the vineyard of our own lives. We don't like God telling us what we owe to Him. And we all stand in danger of facing God's just punishment and wrath. But just like what Jesus promised here in this parable, there is a way to escape God's wrath. And it's by embracing and welcoming the Son whom He loved and sent. God sent His one and only Son to live the life that we ought to have lived, but haven't. He sent Jesus to die the death that we deserve, the death that this parable predicted. And when Jesus died on the cross, He bore the punishment for the sins and wickedness of His people. And that was not the end. For as the Scriptures predicted here, God the Father made Him the cornerstone. God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the Savior that the people rejected. And now He's building His church upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus calls all of us to turn from our wickedness and sin and to place our faith in Him. The Father sent His Son. Will you receive Him? Or will you reject Him? Friend, turn from your sin and come to Jesus in faith. Fall upon Him. Put your whole life upon Jesus. Believe that He lived for you and that He died for you and that He was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. Is it not amazing that the scribes and the chief priests immediately set out to do what Jesus had just predicted they would do in the parable of the wicked tenants. Don't fall under their same condemnation. Come under the authority and rule of Jesus. He is God's beloved Son, and His authority comes from God. Let's turn now and consider the second question that emerges in our passage. To whom do we owe our allegiance? To whom do we owe our allegiance? And to answer this question, let's read Luke chapter 20. Let's read verses 19 to 26. Luke 20, verses 19 to 26. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness. And he said to them, Show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription does it have. He said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's. And, the things, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. See, people have been arguing about taxes for a really long time, haven't they? The scribes and the Pharisees we see here, they wanted to, uh, the, the scribes and the chief priests, they wanted to lay hands on Jesus, but due to their fear of the people, Interesting, isn't it? That's what prevents them. Their fear of man. Due to their fear of the people, they kind of, they resort to plan B. Attempting to entangle Jesus in his words. The scribes and the chief priests apparently enjoy the practice of a good stakeout. As we're told there in verse 20, they watched him. It was, of course, supported by their own intelligence agency. After all, they have spies. Uh, notice how all this is characterized. They pretended to be sincere. Friends, these are the leaders of the people of God doing all these things. We must be very, very careful about who our leaders are. We need leaders among God's people who are 
genuinely sincere. Leaders of God's people may not turn a blind eye to sin, and yet they must be those who are looking for evidence of grace before evidence of guilt. Are we more eager to see guilt or grace in the lives of others? Are we first looking for the work of the Father or the work of the flesh in the lives of others? When we're looking for grace in the lives of others, we're not overlooking sin. We're looking for how sin has been overcome by the power of God. This honors God for glorifies His work. These religious leaders weren't really interested in seeing God's work. All of this watching and spying and pretending had a goal. The scribes and the chief priests wanted to deliver Jesus up. Note to whom? The authority and jurisdiction of the governor. They wanted the Roman authorities to squash this messianic movement. The religious leaders of the people of Israel, who are supposed to be preparing them for the arrival of the Messiah, want Rome to squash this messianic movement. The movement that's actually been sent by God. Before they actually try to catch Jesus in his words, they try to flatter him. Look at verse 21. They shower three compliments on Jesus. You speak and teach rightly. Number two, you show no partiality. Number three, you truly teach the way of God. That's actually all true and accurate. But Jesus sees through it, doesn't he? Verse 23 tells us he does. How do you know when you're being flattered? Sometimes it's hard to tell. Jesus can tell because he knows they don't believe the words they're saying. They don't believe that he teaches rightly because they don't obey his teaching. They, they don't like it that he shows no partiality because, in truth, they actually really want all the attention. They, they really don't believe that he teaches the way of God because they're not following his way. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net his feet. That's what's happening here, isn't it? That's what happens in the D.C. area a lot, doesn't it? Perhaps you've seen it in your workplace. Perhaps you've been flattered uh, in the hopes that you'll do one thing or another, respond one way or another. Perhaps you've flattered others because you wanted something from someone, uh, approval or, or affirmation or action. You need to have a keen ear for flattery. Flattery has an agenda. It's always self-interested. Well, the question finally comes in verse 22. The scribes and the chief priests ask, Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? They're asking whether or not they should pay taxes to Caesar. And given the circumstance, it's a fantastic question. I, either answer would get Jesus in trouble. As, as one scholar points out, a positive answer would alienate Jesus from the Jews who opposed Roman taxation. A negative answer would incriminate him against Rome. You see, one answer would turn the people against Jesus, which the scribes and the chief priests wanted. And the other answer would turn Rome against Jesus, which they also wanted. This is a, a win-win outcome for them, or, or so they think. Jesus asks to be shown a coin. And then he asks a question, back to the questions from Jesus. He asks a question there in verse 24. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? You've got to wonder, are the religious leaders kind of getting nervous? The last time Jesus responded to a question with a question left them speechless and embarrassed before the crowd. Well, they answer his question with Caesar's and put the ball back in his court. Okay, so Caesar, so what are you going to say now? And then comes the marvelous answer of verse 25. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. See, the coin, it has Caesar's picture on it. So Jesus intimates that, look, this coin, it's got Caesar's image on it. It belongs to him. So just give it to him. Jesus thinks that you should pay your taxes. You should pay your taxes. That's a legitimate application from this text. We should honor 
and obey the governmental authority that God has set over us. It is only when the government calls us to disobey Jesus that we must say, no, Jesus is Lord. I must obey God before men. Now, one of the things that makes Jesus' answer here fascinating is that both Rome and the Jewish religious leaders understood religion and the state to be intimately intertwined, inseparable even, dependent upon one another at one level. After all, the very coin that Jesus was holding reveals this. It declared that Tiberius Caesar to be the divine son of Augustine and Pontifex Maximus, or high priest, was on the opposite side of the coin. In the lead up to his death, Jesus would say to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus did not deny that he is king. No, he certainly was and is a king. But his kingdom is not of this world. He does not rule through the state. He rules over the state. And he allows the state to rule. The Bible teaches that the state has been charged with being a servant for good and a terror to evil. You can read about that in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. The state is charged with being a servant for good and a terror to evil. So, for those of you who work in government, this is what you are to labor for. To be a servant of good, of blessing, and of mercy to your fellow man, to your neighbor. You are to work at being a servant of good, and you are to be an absolute terror to evil. So go after things like human trafficking with little restraint. Be a terror to evil in this world. That is what God has ordained the government for. And as I said, Jesus does not rule through the state. He rules over the state. He allows the state to rule. In our minds, as believers living in this world, we must be careful not to put our hope in the state or in those who are given authority by the state. I do not think we should have anxiety, worry, or fear about the turmoil that occurs within the kingdoms of this world. Should we be concerned? Sure, we, we can be concerned and we can work for peace. But should we be afraid? No. We must not equate the kingdoms of this world with the kingdom of God. If a kingdom of this world is falling, that does not mean that the kingdom of God is falling or failing. Jesus' answer here does not allow for that. In truth, though the first half of Jesus' answer is astounding, it's the second half of Jesus' answer that is truly amazing. If the coin belongs to Caesar because it bears his image, then what belongs to God? Where has God placed his image and inscription? Well, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28 tell us that he has made man in his image. Genesis 1, 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. See, God's image and inscription rests upon mankind. We are all gods, including Caesars. But what does it mean to be made in the image of God? We don't have time to work out a full biblical anthropology, but so let me briefly summarize. In sum, we may say that those made in God's image are reflective, representative, relational, and responsible. Man is reflective in that he reflects God and is dependent Upon him for his identity. We're all dependent upon God for our identity. Man's reflective. Man's representative. And that he's to steward God's creation in the likeness of his creator. He's representative. We're to steward God's creation in the likeness of his creator. We're to represent God to the world. An image bearer is relational. And that he relates to his creator. And he relates to those whom the creator has put him in community with. Finally, man is responsible to carry out the commission and commands of God. We're responsible to carry out the commission and commands of God. Image bears, human beings are reflective, representative, relational, and responsible. So let's circle back to the second half of Jesus' answer and ask, what are men to give to God? Well, the answer is simple. 
their whole lives. You owe your whole life to God. We owe our allegiance to God. Have you given up yourself to Him? Part of giving up yourself to God means you are to obey Him. Part of obeying God involves obeying those whom He has placed in authority over us. So children, youth, young adults, did you know that God commands you? He commands you to obey your parents in the Lord. Ephesians 6.1 This is right. Did you know that your parents must obey God? They must. We, we who have jobs and are employed, we must obey our employers. Ephesians 6.5 Members of Arlington Baptist Church, you should obey your elders. Hebrews 13.17 Insofar as the authority that God has placed over us is not calling us to sin, we ought to obey them. We're all living under authority in one way or another. And there's another side to the coin. We all have the privilege of exercising authority at one level. And so we must be careful in our exercise of authority because we are representing God when we do. Our exercise of authority must be reflective of God's authority. It must be gracious authority. It must be generous authority. Kind, charitable, just, and good. Do not take the authority that God has given to you lightly. You're either telling the truth about who He is, or you're lying about Him and His authority. We must take the authority that we have seriously and handle it with care. Let's also remember that lurking underneath these questions is the challenge to Jesus' authority. Where else has God placed His image? Well, standing before the crowd, speaking these words to the chief priests and the scribes was the very image of the invisible God, as Colossians 1.15 tells us. Jesus is the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, as Colossians 2.9 says. In fact, it is in His image that believers are being renewed. When we sinned and fell in Adam, the image of God was not lost, but it was sorely distorted. Like a, a broken mirror, we can still see the image of God, but it is distorted and divided by cracks and crevices. And the goal from the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 20, was for man to reflect and represent and relate and live responsibly before God is finally revealed and met and fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the image declaring to that crowd what God looks like and lives like and loves like. And as is revealed particularly in those passages which address being conformed and transformed into Jesus' image, believers have been redeemed, renewed, recommissioned and re-equipped for this work of imaging God in a new and powerful way by the Spirit of Christ. And while we await the fullness of this eschatological, this final reality, we ought always to give thanks for all that we have in Christ, all that we are in Him, and all that we will be because of Him. He has, is, and will take us from this body of dust to a body of glory. And that is but one reason why we owe our allegiance to Jesus. These men, the, the chief priests and the scribes, owe their whole lives to God. And if they had eyes to see, they would have seen the image of the invisible God in Jesus Christ and recognized that they were to give themselves to Him and to His authority. But notice, you see there in verse 26, they marvel at Jesus, but they don't make Him their master. What about you? Are you amazed by Jesus? Do you marvel at His profound teaching and righteous character? Will you remain silent? Or will you open your mouth to confess your faith in Him and your allegiance to Him? The question of the chief priests and the scribes comes to a close. And the question of another party emerges in Luke chapter 20, verse 27. The question that we encounter in these verses is, is there a resurrection? 
I wonder if this is a question you've had. Is there a resurrection? This is the third question or outline. The Sadducees, they're the, the group mentioned here, they were a, a different group of religious leaders in Jerusalem. They were kind of a, a funny bunch. Uh, a number of things distinguished them from the other religious leaders in Jerusalem. They were a minority group of religious teachers because they did not believe in the resurrection and, and because they only held the, the, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, were authoritative for faith and practice. Uh, let's read and reflect upon their question and Jesus' answer. Begin there in verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees who denied that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her and likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died in the resurrection. Therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God and being sons of the resurrection but that the dead are raised even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob now he is not God of the dead but of the living for all live to him then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. Now, I don't know if you caught this, but pride and insincerity really exudes from their question to Jesus. They mockingly set up a scenario that plays off the Old Testament concept of leveret marriage from Deuteronomy chapter 25. You can almost hear the scorn kind of oozing out of their words. In the resurrection, Jesus, whose wife... Is she going to be? They're not really interested in the answer to the question of whom this one will be married to in heaven. Rather, their aim is to question Jesus' belief in the resurrection. They want to undermine Jesus' authority as a teacher by showing the crowds who are flocking to him that he teaches silly things like the resurrection. This is actually a crucial question for the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 18, verse 33, Jesus has already predicted that he would rise Again, that he would be resurrected from the dead. A lot is riding on this question. The Sadducees may treat the subject with levity, but it is weighty for Jesus. His whole future depends on it. Jesus answers the Sadducees' question on two levels, or kind of in two passes, two sweeps. First, in verse 34 to 36, Jesus actually assumes the resurrection of the dead. Did you notice that? See what Jesus is doing here? He's not ceding any ground. He's not giving up any presuppositions. Rather, he takes their questions head on and points out that their presuppositions are mistaken. They misunderstand the nature of life in the new heavens and the new earth. And what is clear in Jesus' response is that he believes there are incongruities differences with this life that we're living in now and the life to come. Yes, there will be similarities, but there will also be differences, significant differences, like the dismissal of death. No one will ever die again. Another difference is that men and women will not marry or be given in marriage. And from what I can recall, the only marriage ceremony that's ever mentioned as being part of the new heavens and the new earth is between Christ and His church. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, here in, in just a little while. We will be looking forward to the full and final union of Christ and His people. We're celebrating now what we are sure we will receive in glory. Full and perfect union with Christ. Why does Jesus mention equality with angels? Now note here that Jesus does not say that those who attain to the resurrection will become angels. The Bible nowhere teaches that. Image bearers will not become angels. People will not become angels. That's not biblical 
teaching. Jesus says that those who attain to the resurrection, the new heavens and the new earth, will become equal to the angels. And I think that what Jesus is communicating is that in glory, marriage is no longer necessary. Uh, as David Garland points out, quote, those who are resurrected, like angels, have no need to propagate. Marriage is a necessary institution in the present created order, necessary for the propagation, the continuation of the human race, but it is not necessary in the new creation. There will be no more death. There will be no extinction. There is one other thing that we should notice about the first plank of Jesus' argument, and that's this, that not everyone is worthy. Did you notice that word? Not everyone's worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. In other words, Jesus was not a universalist. He did not believe that everyone was going to heaven. Then, in verses 37 and 38, Jesus proves, as part of the second plank of his argument, what he has just asserted. He proves the resurrection of the dead, and this is funny, striking. He proves the resurrection from the dead from the very book books that the Sadducees held to be authoritative. He goes to their territory. Jesus basically implies that these men neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. He's implying that these men know nothing of the religion which they claim to be teachers and leaders of. God was not the God of the dead, but of the living. Otherwise, why would God say to Moses at the burning bush, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Why was God still bound to keep his promises to them? Because they had not died. They may have physically died, but spiritually they are eternally alive to God. They live to him. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were alive to God, and he was going to raise their bodies from the grave. The resurrection is dependent upon the character of God. The God who raised Adam from the dust can do it again. And he will. The Sadducees were badly mistaken because they did not know the living God. Could there be a more revealing statement concerning their understanding of the very character of God himself? The Sadducees' question didn't undermine Jesus' authority. It undermined their own. And so they did not dare ask Jesus another question. Is there a resurrection? Jesus' answer is a resounding yes. His answer is not dependent upon logic, though his answer is logical. Jesus grounds his answer upon the testimony of Scripture and the self-revelation of the God who made the world and every living thing in it. Our God is a God of life. And finally, Jesus raises a question. He's, his question is this, who is David's Lord? This is our fourth and final question. And in some ways, this is the climax of the text. As now Jesus, after having been asked a question, question after question, asks the question that everyone needs to answer. Who is David's Lord? Take a look at verses 41 to 47. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers, they will receive greater condemnation. The opening of verse 41 makes it seem as though Luke wants to tie the previous question to this question from Jesus. The religious leaders thought that they had some puzzling questions for Jesus. Well, he had a puzzling question for them. And it gets right to the heart of who he is. Indeed, it exposes their hostility toward him and their unwillingness to recognize him as the promised and predicted Lord of David. Here Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, a psalm we read from earlier in the service, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, just two chapters earlier in Luke chapter 18, verse 38, a blind man identified Jesus as the son of David. Indeed, Luke identifies him as David's son in his genealogy, and so does Matthew in his gospel. 
tells us, Matthew's Gospel tells us that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, there was a song sung over his entry. I don't know how the tune went, but the words were this, Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus asks, how can David's son also be David's Lord? You see, Psalm 110 makes plain that David affirmed the Messiah is the one who pre-existed him, yet who in the future would come from his line. The only person who can ever interact with time that way is God. You want to know by whose authority Jesus is doing these things? Verse 2. He's doing them by his own authority. Jesus is David's son, the promised Messiah, and he is David's Lord, the God of heaven, the one who rules over creation. He has come to earth. Jesus is the one, the divine son sent by God the Father. David recognized the coming Messiah was divine, his Lord whom he should worship and adore. Jesus, David's son, David's Lord, would be both fully man and fully God. And that is precisely who Jesus is. And this question from Jesus functions as a condemnation of the theology of the Jewish religious leaders. And then he reveals that their lives are empty too. In verses 46 to 47, Jesus tells his disciples what everyone already knew. That the Jewish leaders, religious leaders are more concerned about how they appear before people than how they appear before God. They want the attention. They want the honor. They prey upon widows and their prayers are full of pretense. Their behavior that Jesus describes here is the exact same behavior that the prophet Isaiah condemned in his parable of the vineyard. The authority they had, they had abused. They were going to abuse their authority further still as they were going to reject the Son sent from heaven. They would soon reject the cornerstone. They would soon reject the very image of the invisible God. They would reject God Himself. And for this, they would receive their just condemnation. And as we conclude, I want to ask you a few questions. Do you believe that Jesus is God's beloved Son sent to live, love, and die for you? Do you believe that you owe your whole life to Him, your allegiance to Him above all else? Have you taken God at His word and believed Him to be the God of the living that you will one day rise from your grave to be with Jesus in glory or to face His judgment? Is David's Lord, Jesus, is He your Lord? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for sending your Son to a rebellious people like us.